Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Koek, is joined by Kelly Matthews and Dr. Sue Edwards. Kelly Matthews received her Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. She is a freelance writer and editor. A former women's ministry leader, she is the co-author of Women's Retreats and New Doors in Ministry to Women. She lives with her husband, John, and her children in Texas. Dr. Sue Edwards received her master's from Dallas Theological Seminary and doctorate of ministry from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She is associate professor of educational ministry and leadership at Dallas Theological Seminary. She has more than 25 years of experience teaching, pastoring, and directing women's ministries. In addition, Sue speaks at retreats, conferences, and seminars across the country and is author of the Discover Together Bible Study Series. Hi, Sue and Kelly. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. This is exciting. Yeah, we're grateful to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk with you both about this new book that you have coming out, 40 Questions About Women in Ministry. And it is a fabulous read. I I just love it. And I'm excited to, to dive into it. One of the things I loved, and I just had to chuckle at the beginning, you talk about your hope to offer more light and less heat. And I thought, yeah, that is, and you do, I think you do offer more light and less heat. Now I'm talking to you from Chicago and it's March. And so I kind of like heat actually, (laughs) but I get your point, right? That we don't need the kind of heat that often prevents us from really exploring uh, the, the topic of women in ministry, and women in the Bible, how to best understand them. So I really appreciate your courage in taking this this subject on and doing it with, um, you know, just with a, an even hand uh, and, and a gracious spirit. Um, you know, before you dive in, and I think this is such an excellent um, decision on your part, you, before you even start with the subject, you you step back a bit and you talk about trigger words or words that that provide more heat and less light. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, what those words are and how how they um, and, and how you decided to to move forward uh, beyond that <laughs> beyond that or in a different in a different way? Sure. Well what we have found is that a lot of labels in this uh, conversation uh, confuse and cause stereotyping and are easily misunderstood. And uh, I know both of us teach the Bible from time to time and uh, words like submission and uh, head of the home. And we wouldn't throw those out without explaining them in in some detail because they have been uh, misused in some way. Uh, Head of the home is not actually even in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says head of the wife, and that's a different discussion. So these trigger words, uh, we found uh, complementarian and egalitarian are also part of that 
uh, that triggering language. It carries tons of baggage. It poorly communicates. And, and those are factions that the groups have given themselves. And a lot of times those who define themselves control the arguments just by the words that they use. Mm -hmm. and, and these two groups have actually have um, some things in common that we, we wouldn't actually uh, realize. Like egalitarians believe just like complementarians that uh, men and women are equal in value and in their humanity. Uh, complementarians um, like egalitarians believe that men and women should complement each other in their work. And they have a lot of things. They both hold a high view of scripture. Women have and men have the same spiritual gifts. Um, gender differences are good. There are just so many of those things. So we really looked for what is a core difference in these two views. And, and what we saw when you boil it all down is that it relates to the organizational structure that then leads to personal interrelationships. And so uh, complement, complementarians generally uh, all agree. It's a broad spectrum in the complementarian uh, world, but, but generally um, God has ordained a hierarchical or a layered order in the house and in the church with men um, at the top of that order. Egalitarians believe there's a flat uh, organizational structure that's based on uh, mutual respect and on uh, merit and that the hierarchical systems have been imposed by interpreters who are influenced by that patriarchal culture and, and sometimes by their own uh, personal uh, issues. And so um, we have chosen different terms. And so instead of complementarian, in the book, we use the term hierarch. A hierarch is someone who believes there's a layered structure that comes out of the scriptures. An egalitarian, uh, we have used the term heterarch, which denotes a flat um, structure. And um, all the way through, and these are different terms that you have to get used to, uh, but we found that um, each of these groups, hierarchs tend to support, and, and heterarchs as well, they support their views by looking at certain passages and minimizing others. Yes, and thank both, you. Yeah, yeah. I both know, and that's, it, it is interesting, isn't it, yeah. how the... Um, well, first of all, let me just back up and say I loved that you that you kind of used made up words <laughs> because because <laughs> um, it, it it shifted the argument and arguments enough. It provided a different um, avenue into the conversation. You know, unbalancing things a little bit that uh, yeah that that allowed me, I think, to see with fresh eyes what was what was being said, and that that was so helpful. And the other thing um, uh, that this this does is it allows you then to walk through scripture and and say now uh, here is a hierarch view and here is a heterarch view and and unlike books that have sort of the two views 
which mm-hmm. kind of can set up argument, uh, uh, kind of an argumentative uh, format. Your book just is kind of laying things out as information. Kelly, did you want to comment on that? Uh, you know, more light, less heat. Is how much <laughs> did you think about the the oh. structure in that? Yeah, we went back and forth for quite a while as we got started on um, trying to avoid complementarianism and egalitarianism. We thought the words are just too hot to handle and people uh, emotionally are attached to them uh, one way or the other. (laughs) And so, yeah, we really, um, hierarchy was easier. Uh, I think we really leaned on Lucy Pepiat in um, her terminology and... um, thought, you know, it really does boil down to, do you see in Genesis a a hierarchy or not? And that really determines which path you're on, uh, the way you interpret the rest of scripture. And so, heterarch was, (laughs) we really went back and forth on that one. But it's fun. It's a fun word. And and you know what, you might as well have a little bit of fun as you're digging into these really deep, uh, deep issues. And both of you have mentioned scripture and Kelly, you just mentioned uh, Genesis. And so I'm going to uh, well, let's just dive right in. What's going on in Genesis 1, 26 and 27? What what does that teach us about women? Well, it teaches us that um, if we're looking at 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So we see uh, in this overarch, you know, uh, view of creation in that this is the culmination and he has created humanity in his image and he includes both men and women in this. Uh, So they're declared very good, not just good. So we kind of come at it from that. We say, okay, here's what scripture says. And then we will give you uh, how the different camps tend to uh, view that and then extrapolate from it. Um, So Richard Middleton argues that, um, you know, when you understand image of God, you're talking about a mediator. Like this is the, this is what, uh, does the work of God in on the earth. And so they, we even have some super conservative, like traditional way back uh, theologians like Augustine. I mean, we love him, but not here. Uh, <laughs> what does Augustine do? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we, it's hard to argue with Augustine, except his views of women are a little skewed. Um, and so he uh, believes that, um, that when the woman is referred to separately, uh, according to like help meet, which is the old English way of interpreting those words. Uh, and that's where help mate comes from uh, erroneously, that uh, the woman alone is not the image of God. And so um, another theologian in the fifth century just said creation order means male superiority. And then even in the 17th century, John Gill is like, only man is really the image of God, women only secondarily and, and through man can become the image or are the image of God. So most theologians today have really backed off on that. And so we just had to kind of put it out there like this has been a historical view. Right now, the um, the hierarch or complementarians, as they call themselves, uh, will affirm that women and men are equal in value and dignity um, and that that's a wonderful privilege. Uh, but they will also say that women don't reflect God's image uh, related to authority in the way that men do. So uh, they, they kind of carve out just one yeah. little 
area. But, but they don't really to. give a reason for it. Like we <laughs> haven't found their arguments based in Genesis. It's based on other things, uh, not all of its scripture. And so, uh, you know, on the heterarch side, you've got Paul Payne, who is really one of the primary scholars uh, who has done tons of work, especially in the New Testament, um, where he's like, look, <laughs> Genesis doesn't say anything about rank. It just talks about how uh, the woman was created as a as a partner, like they were created together. Uh, and so it, he really focuses on the unity of man and woman. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how the two uh, sides kind of come at it. Well, and you mentioned um, the, he, uh, the helper language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, can you just tell us a little bit more? You even get into a little bit of the transliterated Hebrew here to help us oh, kind of okay. understand. Um, yeah, that's in chapter two. Um, yeah. So Azer is um, the helper word. And um, I love Carolyn Custis James over the last 10 or so years has really brought that out in her work um, to understand what that means. It, and it is a word found in the Old Testament 21 times. The majority of them are about God coming alongside Israel as the helper. And so there's really no... Um, connotation of weakness or strength. It's just, I'm coming along. Now, connecto is like a phrase that means corresponding to. So that's where the strength comes in. And uh, so often we will translate this in uh, Genesis 2 as a helper fit for or a helper suitable for the man. Uh, Whereas some translators might even push it to saying, a power or strength equal to. So there's some, there's some leeway in the way that you might interpret that. Um, well, but- you guys do such a good job um, of filling out the pictures. In this particular case, I loved the analogy that you used of the United States being a helper uh, to Britain in oh, World yeah. War II, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that, I just thought there's just all these wonderful little gems uh scattered throughout. But um, Sue, I know that, uh, you know, we've got this great stuff in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we hit Genesis 3 and the fall. Uh, how, how, how do you understand that, especially as pertains to women? Well, Genesis 2 and 3 are, are, we have to think about the kind of literature that they are. And, and they are narrative, they're divine narrative literature, which is story, which means that we can, in a story, you can pull out different ideas from just what the story is about. And and really, hierarchs come out with uh, that they, they're pulling out, there are timeless principles here, that men have authority over women in the home and the church. That's their bottom line. And every part of that text, they pull that out. Heterarchs, are going to see something different. They they look at that text and they don't see leadership, headship, authority, and those words are not there at all. Um, and and so what they see is an is a unity, a a one flesh emphasis working uh, together. And um, even Wayne Grudem, a hierarch, says that. Um, 
some of these arguments have more force than others, he said, but, and some of them just whisper headship, but some shout it clearly. Uh, whereas uh, scholars like Andrew Bartlett say, no, it's not in there. It's an, it's, a, it's an implication that you can draw, but uh, really he says that the unity of men and women, uh, particularly in verse 24, is what is the heart of that text. Um, now, when we get to Genesis 3.16, with the fall, um, that, that also influences what's going on. Uh, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you, which is, I think, uh, probably the best translation, mainly because in Genesis 4-7, that word dominate, it's the same Hebrew word. Um, and so both hierarchs and heterarchs say, no, the, 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 the fall is not good. But the hierarch says back in Genesis 2, Adam was given permanent authority over Eve. Her role is to support him. And it's just changed the way that he does that, that in our flesh, men and women do this badly. Uh, heterarchs basically say that that beautiful one flesh relationship of unity, which was in Genesis 2, is actually been spoiled by um, Genesis 3. So, um, and I love Sandy's, Sandy Glahn's quote. She says, we don't say it's wrong to buy weed killer, even though weeds weren't part of the, were part of the fall. We don't tell students learning Greek that they're out of God's will. If they take language courses because God confused languages at Babel, uh, we fight the effects of sin. We don't embrace them. And um, she says that, that really what, what Jesus wants to see in our communities is sisters and brothers shouldering the load together. And that's a very different perspective on the whole Genesis story. And one group takes it one way, other people take it another way. Well, and uh, what, what's so nice is being able to lay it out as you do really helps the reader to ponder uh, these these views and see maybe some of the ramifications as you as you looked at all of uh, of these theories um, and and you thought about your own experiences in in the uh, churches um, you did you were there um, I guess what I'm, I'm kind of asking is these are deep things that you wrestled with and looked and looked at. How, how did you sort of feel, if you will, the two of you as you were working on this project? Was, was it energizing or was, did it feel sometimes too much? I mean, these are heavy issues. You want to take that, Sue? First? No, you take it. I've <laughs> done <laughs> more so, talking. Okay. So Sue and I come at this front with a, uh, um, a 
large number of differences in the way we've done ministry. Um, you know, Sue's been a pastor to women at an egalitarian type church for a long time, um, where she was given lots of freedom um, to lead women and teach and really developed an incredible ministry there. Uh, many years ago, right out of seminary, um, I was a director of women's ministry at a very small church. So I was really just getting my feet wet and kind of learning what it was all about. And I only did it for a few years because I had little ones at home. Uh, so, but all, you know, in the meantime, we've been writing together through all of the, the last, you know, 10 to 20 years uh, periodically. So we've been in the world of women, specifically women's ministry, uh, but understanding that this greater conversation has been going on around us and about us. Uh, and so, um, when we started working on these questions, we mostly, we, we looked at the 40 questions after they were all you know, put together and we said, all right, pick your favorites and we'll each tackle one. And then, and so that was energizing. Like we each got to decide, oh yeah, I really wanted to do this question. And uh, we, you know, we kind of knew the scholarship that was out there, but we did learn a lot. My poor husband is like, how many books are you going to buy to write a book? <laughs> so um, we, I read more than I've ever read before about one topic just to, to work through this, you know, project. And so, yeah, it was very energizing. And then there were a few chapters uh, that are difficult. Um, and so, yeah, and sometimes you look at an argument and you go, that was not very well put together. I didn't realize that <laughs> all these right. years that what's undergirding in this argument doesn't really hold up. Uh, you know, so our challenge also was to try to keep ourselves out of it as much as possible and just lay out here, here's the issue and here's this argument and here's this argument and here's how these guys and gals come together, um, you know, and put their arguments together. Every now and then uh, we'll, you'll find in the chapters that we don't have to come down on an answer uh, or there's really no debates. Like there are a few chapters that we had a colleague write with us uh, about the history uh, of women uh, uh, throughout church history. So um, that, you know, that's not as controversial necessarily. So the, there aren't a lot of you know, sides to take. Yes. Yes. Um, well, uh, go ahead, Sue. Yeah, I please. I was going to say, and for me, I actually have served in churches with very different views. I was for quite a while in a strong hierarchical church where I did ministry to women and then God opened a door in a, a complementarian, but very did complementarianism so beautifully that it almost feels like an egalitarian in the sense of giving women opportunity. But I've been in both of those worlds and then been in the seminary world teaching for over 20 years. And um, that's been enjoyable but a challenge and uh, the men are 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 really a delight initially they went dr edwards my my prof is a woman i'm not sure what to do with this and over the last 20 or 25 years um, it's really opened up and um, the ethos has changed uh, still very still complementarian still hierarchical generally but uh, much more accepting of partnering in healthy ways with women. Well, and that's that is wonderful to uh, to hear because uh, the the goal is that partnership, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, so one of the chapters you have 
is on the Proverbs 31 woman. And that has to be one of my least favorite preached on texts. I'm not saying it's my least favorite text per se, but I feel like I hold my breath to see <laughs> how somebody I know to say, how, how am I going to be bludgeoned today? Right. Um, but, but you know what? Uh, you, you, you just, uh, open up things. Can you talk a little bit? Um, cause maybe there's some listeners who are like me, you know, who want to just skip over Proverbs 31, but what, what are some of the things you learned about that? Well, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, I think that's the woman we love to hate because <laughs> she just looks like this perfect woman. Um, but the reality is that um, that that uh, the audience there is is well, actually, the author there is um, the queen who is talking to her son about who he should marry. So the audience is actually men and not women. It's written originally by a mother-in-law who is deciding or laying out the perfect daughter-in-law. So she isn't a real woman, first of all, nor we have to remember her context. Um, she is an aristocratic uh, woman who is very wealthy and and and, she, and and her situation does not fit our situation. And so we have to pull out uh, some principles, but too often we look at that and we say, um, and, and the hierarchs tend to look at it and say, here's the text on what women do that relates to their household. And therefore that's the stereotype that every woman, she's going to be fulfilled as a woman. That's what she needs to do. And, and heterarchs look at that and say, no, um, there are all kinds of, of variations in her life. And we pull out those general principles, but we're not really, um, we're, we're distorting the text if we say that every woman must follow those particular patterns as such. So it's a freeing, it's very freeing when, when we can look at it that way. So Lynn, yes. would you rather listen to a sermon like that? Oh, I would, I could, I could sit through that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, my, my, uh, husband was raised uh, by a, a wonderful woman who was a fabulous cook. He did not marry a woman who is a fabulous cook. Oh, just like my husband. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But fortunately he's real good with um, prepackaged food and that sort of thing. <laughs> Scrambled eggs and an English muffin for dinner. Yeah, there you, you, can't, go. you can't go wrong. Although I can even ruin that, but <clears throat> that's my talent. Um, you know, so yeah, I think, uh, well, and there was another kind of switching gears from Proverbs 31. I also was really intrigued about your chapter on Deborah and Hulda. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people know Deborah, fewer people know Hulda, but that whole, th those uh, were women who you don't hear about them being in the home, right? They're, they're almost like the anti Proverbs 31, or at least a particular way of interpreting Proverbs mm -hmm. 31. So can you talk a little bit about who Deborah is, who Hulda is, and then you, you package all of that in the context of prophecy. Just talk a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Well, um, Deborah and, and Hulda and the women prophets 
are often what are called by heterarchs as breakouts and are called by hierarchs as we don't know what to do with these women, basically. <laughs> um, and for Deborah, particularly, yeah. they're anomalies. And so for, for, for heterarchs, they have really attempted to limit those women. Somehow they have to say they're limited. And so they would say that they are, Deborah didn't, re, even though she was a judge and she was a prophetess, she actually uh, didn't, she limited herself as a woman. And the reason was because there were no women, no men available who this were. Is, this is the hierarchy. This uh, is the hierarchy. Yeah. Yes. There are no, there were no men available who, um, and, and it's to shame the men basically. Um, and the heterarchs will come along and say, well, wait a minute, God, the, God can raise up a, a donkey. He can raise up <laughs> men. This doesn't make sense. And so their, their views are quite different. Um, Barack for the hierarch is a man who was a, a weakling and, um, and, and just shamed all the men because he asked Deborah to go with him. Um, the heterarchs say, no, that can't be because he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And it says he was powerful in battle and he routed foreign armies. And, um, and, and one, uh, Ronald Pierce writes about uh, Deborah, that, about Barack, saying his, his insistence that the, she accompany him should be understood as no less than an appropriate plea for the presence of God that as she was a strong partner, a faithful prophet, and a nationally recognized leader. And so he wanted her there as, as God's representative. Now, we did find that there were a few heterarchs that went too far. And this is what we see on both sides. We call that interpreting scriptures evangelistically. <laughs> evangelistically. Yes, I remember seeing that. And, thinking, and both man, you guys are just having fun in, well, in both what groups, is a. Uh, yeah, I mean, know, both, both groups do it. They mm -hmm. both do it. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can find where Deborah was. Uh, uh, that, that was actually the warrior and the military leader in some of the heterarchs. Um, uh, the Kroger's write, the male general was afraid to lead the, the hosts of Israel against so formidable a foe. So Deborah marched with him at the head of the troops. So they're reading into. They're, I mean, they're they, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and that's where all of us just really need to be careful. We wanted to look at the scriptures for what it says and not stretch uh, either way. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, that raised and you, and you do raise this, uh, which is fantastic in the book, the, the just the straight up question, are men better leaders than women? You know, and I found you gave tremendously helpful information, uh, some examples of, you know, what how one would even answer such a question. And well, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, uh, let me start yeah. real quick. You want to take that, that Kelly? Yeah. I mean, well, we can both jump in. Um, when we're talking about leadership, um, you can look at it uh, from a spiritual gifts point of view uh, in that um, 
leadership is not a male characteristic, uh, as our culture tends to uh, want to look at it. Uh, it is amongst the listed spiritual gifts, and we know that spiritual gifts are given by the Spirit according to His will, not according to gender. So, in that sense, no, neither one are better or the other. It's going to be a um, a combination of gifting and um, just natural talent and desire and experience and you know all the things that go into leadership. Um, so there's no gender distinction in that. Uh, we have physical and biological differences um, that there have been studies done. Um, we've done, uh, what is it, Cindy uh, Rosenthal mm-hmm. analyzed data. So I know we have some uh, stories in there, some statistics uh, about different legislative committee chairs, um, male and female, and they found uh, conclusions like women legislators tended to lead more inclusively um, whereas the men would be more transactional and competitive. So women are more collaborative, uh, looking for consensus uh, and recognizing relationships more than the men would. So they each focus on different uh, outcomes and different ways to get to those outcomes. Better or worse, that's not the point. It's just different. Thank you. That, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Yeah. And one of the... Uh, aspects of the of the book you often will give your personal stories and you talk about the title of pastor uh pastor elder director how those titles Mm -hmm. might be used in church but i i especially appreciated how you unpacked the fact that for some women in certain circumstances the title really does matter why why would that be the case can you just kind of fill out for us that discussion that you have about titles uh, for the for women in ministry. Yes, um, I have seen that over the last 30 or 40 years really change and it, it does make a difference. I've been called a director, I've been called a minister, I've been called a pastor now. Uh, and it makes a difference in how a woman is viewed by everyone around her. It makes a difference in the compensation. It makes a difference in the motivation. All of those things add value. And, 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 and a director is not what I did. I was ministering. I was a shepherd. And really the word pastor means shepherd. Where I was called a pastor was not considered an office. It was just that there was a shepherd to the children. There was a shepherd to the women because that's what I was. I was teaching them. I was mentoring them. I was counseling, counseling them. I was, that was what I did. And a director is more like a, a term from a business where you're uh, putting plans into place and you did that too, but it, it just seems to minimize. So, so, and and it makes a big difference to men. That's what we found as well, that for a man, uh, those titles do matter and the respect that he gives. So so there's a different place at the table for a woman who has um, who has a title that fits what she does. It, it, it does, it does yeah. matter. In certain denominations, those are real technical terms as well. And it will uh, reflect a rank within the denomination. So whichever one they give. Uh, really impacts what they're able to do, how they're able to rise or not. And again, compensation, all of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate you laying that out because uh, studies seem to show that women just don't always advocate well for themselves and might feel bad, you know, saying, no, I really should be called pastor because that's what I do. You're both not the, the <laughs> listeners can't uh, see this, yeah. but you're both nodding your heads here like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That is one of the issues. I, I often say I can't over encourage women. Yeah, I can't over encourage some of my brothers occasionally, <laughs> uh, but women just seem to be down on themselves. Uh, I, I wish we had an answer to why. And there well, are this, some. But, yeah. And but this book, I think, uh, will help give women just understanding about the biblical text, feeling that they're standing on a, a stronger foundation, better able to know their own views and express them. Um, I think that goes a long way to a self-confidence. Yeah. As, as we're finishing up here, I, I want to uh, ask a final question and also thank you. One of your last chapters, you uh, focus on the question, how do we make churches safer for women? Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, that I, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the content of that chapter, but I also... Mm-hmm appreciate that you're acknowledging uh, an underbelly to uh, ministry, and we're seeing it in the news with much more regularity than we want in uh, not just churches, but parachurch organizations. So what do you talk about in that chapter as we try to make churches safer? Um, About 14 years ago, we wrote a book called Mixed Ministry, uh, and it talked about men and women working together in an oversex culture. And it was probably about 10 years ahead of its time because we didn't have Me Too in Church Too. Uh, and so we didn't, we don't discuss it. Um, but now that we have gone through that uh, movement and are still in it, we knew that this book needed to address um, life on the ground, you know, in the church and um, what safety looks like when it comes to women. So we had uh, another colleague of ours, um, seminary student, Misty Hedrick, help us. um, And she did the majority of the work on this. And uh, so we looked at um, the ideas of what what makes a safe church for women. Um, Well, for everyone, but specifically for women. And it's not safety in terms of protecting uh, from physical violence, uh, hate crimes, threats. It's more emotional, spiritual, domestic and sexual safety. Um, And so, you know, when Paul is speaking of the church as a flock of sheep, uh, they're threatened by wolves who might come in and slink in amongst them. And so, how do you create a church culture that makes women feel safe so that they can come to a pastor and say, uh, I'm I'm being abused at home, or I've been, uh, someone has harassed me, or uh, whatever it is, or I feel unsafe. Uh, so pastors need to be educated, and uh, that would be taking classes, being trauma-informed shepherds, you know, uh, safety training, certifications, knowing the terms and how to differentiate between them. And um, and then they need to learn how to listen and, and not assume that a woman is overreacting, but to assume that she's telling the truth. And then inv- investigations happen, and they typically need to happen by an outside source, uh, not an internal investigation. Uh, Understand that false reports are very rare. 
and that one in five women has been sexually assaulted and one in four has experienced uh, domestic abuse. So it's out there. Um, And third, protect the victim, not the abuser. And that seems to be what we're finding uh, or what we're hearing about in the in the news these days when someone uh, with power uh, or reputation has been accused, uh, typically the the first response was to uh, mitigate that uh, damage control. Our church is going to look bad. He's going to be hurt. And and they forget about the person who came forward and said, I'm the one who got hurt. Uh, So that needs to to switch and uh, victim care should be the priority. Uh, and then, you know, one of the main things uh, at the end is just what, is, what does love look like? What is love on the ground? And uh, part of it is that pastors who uh, love Diane Langberg and her quote, um, your value as a shepherd depends on your life as a lamb, which is speaking to the spiritual health of the leaders, like cultivate your relationship with the Lord constantly. Oh, that's excellent. So, yeah, we just, we're so grateful to Misty for really working through that, yeah, uh, yeah. doing the majority of that. Yeah, she, she did a great, a great job. Mm-hmm. And, and let me add real quick that the, the audience for this book, the way we attempted to write it was not for the academic woman and man. It's, we attempted so hard yeah. to make it understandable for the average person out there and to have one place where you could come and get the perspectives, the different perspectives on 40 different important questions that, and we got these questions by just sending out on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, what are your questions? And in a couple of days, we got about 80 questions. Yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic still, but we wanted to say it in ways that the average man or woman um, could understand it. So we really, we didn't, we tried to make it not simplistic, but clear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that that I, that's an excellent description because it's absolutely not simplistic. You tackle head-on tough questions, but it is very clear. You write with with clarity and uh, and I, uh, with compassion, with that goal always in mind of teamwork, of drawing people together, not alienating uh, the mm-hmm. reader. And it's yeah. a gift to the um, to the church. It is a gift to the church. Mm-hmm. I. I love really reading so. it and it's coming out soon so people can check on yeah. on the on our somehow Serena told them <laughs> where to where to check to yeah. be able to it's pre-purchase pre-order. and all that good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, we uh, really hope that men will read this uh, as much or more than even women since they are typically the ones who are in pastoral leadership um, or who, you know, tend to hold the 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 power, so to speak. Um but yeah, it's for everyone, not just for women. It just is more about women. So, uh, yeah. but it's our, Father's Day gift. Yes, great idea. And our overall goal is with all the crazy things going on in our world today, for the church to be fighting each other over this. Uh, when we're really called to work together for the glory of God and for the gospel. Uh, if we could help people see that this is not one of those issues where we are enemies, but that we really, if we could just come together, there really are valid views on both sides. And uh, we we need to love each other well and work with our brothers and our sisters for the glory of, of Jesus Christ. 
Well, amen to that for the glory of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sue and Kelly. This has been a great conversation. It's a fabulous book, 40 Questions About Women in Ministry. And um, just thanks so much for talking with us today on the Alabaster Jar. It's a privilege. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for the opportunity. If you enjoyed today's conversation, check out the episode description for a link to order Kelly and Sue's new book, 40 Questions About Women in Ministry. Please share, subscribe, and join us here again next week for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.